Well, you can open your Bibles now to Colossians chapter 3. As we finish up a, a big section today, the ending of Colossians comes quickly, and we're almost there. But as you turn, I want you to think about a question. What does it take to have a church? Let's say you're part of a church startup. You want this thing to last. You want a healthy, growing, stable church. So what does it take? Well, the answer you get today in many cases is a coffee bar. I mean, if you want people to come to your church and and feel welcome at your church, you've got to have a coffee bar. You're also going to need graphics. We're talking sharp, trendy, eye-catching graphics. People need to know what you're all about, right? And then let's not forget the music. It's probably top of the list. Who's going to come to your church and stay at your church unless there's like a rock-solid praise band that can bring the house down and move people to tears at the same time? We could go on. I'm sure you're all pretty well-versed in, in what sells when it comes to having a church today. And sadly, all too many confuse style for substance. And as a result, some churches may grow, but it's not always healthy or, or stable. But contrary to public opinion, that the stuff and the fluff of many churches is, is not required to grow. I mean, just look at the early church. They didn't have any of these things. They did not have coffee pour-over stations. They did not have country music jamborees. What brought them together was simply Christ. It's a true faith in Christ, a devotion to Christ. That's all that mattered. And all you really need is Christ. And when Christ is the center of his own church, it's going to grow. It's going to grow on his terms. It will be healthy. It will be stable. And that's something we've been learning in Colossians. I want to take a little time to remind you again what this letter is all about and how it fits into our passage today as well. The Apostle Paul is writing to these young believers in the Colossian church. They're they're facing a hostile culture, though, and opposing worldviews. Many forces are threatening to drag them away from Christ. And so Paul writes to help them. And in part, he guards them against surrounding error, but mostly he's just writing to build them up in their faith. When you plant a tree, the last thing you want is it for, it for it to die from pests or disease. But honestly, the best way to guard against disease and pests is simply to promote the all-around health of the tree. A strong, vibrant, healthy tree will pretty much take care of itself. And so while Paul spends some time refuting the empty philosophy and, and contrary worldviews around them, Mostly in Colossians, he's just writing to to show them Christ and to build up their faith. Then they'll take care of themselves. He accomplishes this by pointing them to Christ. Colossians is a completely Christ-dominated letter. I think pound for pound, given the number of references to Jesus per verses, I think it's the most Christ-saturated book of the Bible. Paul knows the, the knowledge of the Lord, his person, his work, His gospel is the best fertilizer for the church's growth. And so we've learned already so much about who Jesus is, what he's done for us in Colossians 1 and 2. Paul just wants them and us to drink deeply from the well of Christ, that we might be nourished and protected and built up. The true knowledge of Christ filling our minds is the means God uses to, to grow us, to shape us into his image. So back to one of the theme verses of chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He reminds us how knowing Christ becomes the basis for how we are to live. 
Colossians 2, 6, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. You know, in Colossians, we, we see Jesus as Lord, we receive Jesus as Lord, and we come to learn how to live with Jesus as our Lord. Now, chapter 3, in turn, really picks up this theme of now how to live under Christ as your Lord. By faith, we've died to sin. We've come alive to righteousness. We've put off the old self. We've put on the new self. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness. We've been made citizens of heaven. And so in light of all this, we should right now live new lives. Our ethic or how we live stems from our new identity in Christ. For example, back in verse 8 of chapter 3, he tells us about, Now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why not? Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, then have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And being new, then, how should we live? Well, like verse 12, he says, So, as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We've been learning God has worked his salvation into you. Now he wants to see that same salvation worked out of you, to come out, to be lived out. So put on Christ, live like Christ, live as those who've been chosen, made holy and beloved. This is how we are to live. So far, so good. We've learned a lot. But if you haven't caught it by now, I also want to point out, you know, in all these instructions here in chapter 3 we've been looking at for the past several weeks, they also serve to tell us how we are to live in community. In case you didn't notice, all of these commands here come in the plural. That Paul is telling us not just how we are to live, but how we are to live as Christians together. For Paul knows that the Lord intends to grow us together. And the last thing these young believers need is to divide or to isolate. Then there would be easy prey for, for doubt, for temptation. No, they must stay together as one body. This is challenging given how different we all are in the church. It's only by putting on the character of Christ, though, that we can overcome. It's really perfectly summed up, I think, in verses 13 and 14, which we saw last time, where he continues. He says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And for any church to be healthy, stable, and growing, this is what it takes. It doesn't take a, a coffee bar or an advertising campaign, special effects, state-of-the-art sound equipment. It, it takes all of the members putting on Christ, forbearing with one another, forgiving one another, walking in love. You'll have a church. And now we come to verses 15 through 17, our passage for this morning. And here Paul finishes off this thought. The thought he began way back in verse 1. 
And in this section, he's going to give them one last barrage of instruction on how we are to live as new creatures in Christ, how we are to live together. And not surprisingly, his his final words before moving on, they're still Christ-centered. And we continue to learn that what the church needs to grow and thrive is what? Just Christ, more of Christ. Specifically here, the peace of Christ and the word of Christ and the name of Christ. So let's go through these verses and we're going to find what it really takes to have a healthy, stable, growing church. What it really takes to have a healthy, stable, growing church. First, it takes the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. And that's verse 15. Uh, verse 15, we'll, we'll read as we go, but look at verse 15. He says to them, continuing his thought, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. It, Paul wrote this letter during a time that's referred to as the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana stands for the, the peace of Rome. It was a 200 year of relative peace in Rome's history. They still fought plenty of wars of territorial expansion, but this refers to a time when all the infighting and civil war from the Roman Republic was over. It was during this time that Rome's borders expanded to most of the known world. Rome's population reached 70 million people. Back then, that was one-third of the global population. And trade in the Mediterranean increased because ships could sail east without fear. And overall, it's true that the peace of Rome brought stability, and that stability brought prosperity. And the flip side is also true. From the Greek city-states to the American colonies before the revolution, that a house divided will fall. Internal conflict will weaken the whole body. There will be no growth or success, just division and failure. And Christ himself recognized this basic principle. And he was responding to the absurd allegation that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. And he said back to them, and any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Matthew twelve twenty five. I mean, if that's true for, for kingdoms and cities and houses, it is also certainly true for churches. We've been learning in Colossians that when God calls us together in salvation, he doesn't call us alone. He puts us in one body body of Christ, the church, like verse 15 reminds us here at the end, it says, to which indeed you were called in one body. This is by design. God designs us to be together in a body for that's the means he largely uses to help us grow. You know, some trees, you don't want to plant too close together because as they grow, they will shade one another out and prohibit the growth of one another. The church is the opposite. That's where the analogy breaks down. The church is the opposite. Where God designed us to grow more when we're closer together. Encouraging one another. Admonishing one another. Speaking truth to one another. He wants us together. And this helps us understand all throughout scripture why disunity is such a big problem. I mean, look, if you have a local church in open conflict, do you think that church is going to grow? Do you think it's going to be focused on its mission? 
I think we all know the answer is no. Many of you experienced this firsthand. Church politics, infighting, power plays, prominent families pulling strings, gossip, manipulation, hurt feelings, personal preferences. And so much can lead to conflict in a church. And I tell you what, no one wants to join a church in conflict. And more importantly, the lost are not impacted by such a church. How does that church witness the gospel of Christ, which is supposed to bring this thing called the peace of Christ? No, instead, we must pursue and preserve this peace of Christ in our lives and in our assembly. And the emphasis here is on the assembly. These commands are still in the plural. And Paul, again, explicitly reminds us in verse 15, you know, we were called in one body. We're called to peace, not just in our lives, but also in our, in our gatherings, in our local churches. When the peace of Christ rules, though, it produces an atmosphere of harmony. Harmony leads to stability. Stability leads to growth. And as I reflected, I, I can say just, all by God's grace and all to God's glory. But I'm so thankful that this church has been characterized by this atmosphere of peace for, for many years. I don't take that for granted. You should not take that for granted. Like No church, church is perfect, but I hope you're glad at least that you, know, you don't have to play church politics here. You don't have to watch your back. No one's coming after you. No, I think an atmosphere of peace has led to our own unity and growth and stability over the years. But that being said, you still have to work very hard to preserve this peace. Like Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, we have to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And don't get me wrong, an era of peace does not mean there's been zero conflict. Anytime you have sinners living life together, there's going to be sin, conflict, and the threat of division. The difference is you must not let that sin rule. No, instead, like we're commanded in verse 15, we have to let the peace of Christ rule. That will be the difference. There's no sinless or conflict-free church ever with sinners just living life together. But will sin rule or will the peace of Christ rule? And so as we look at verse 15 here, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What is this peace of Christ? This is referring to the peace that Jesus brings. It starts with a vertical peace, a peace with God, which he brought about by his saving work on the cross. I think of Romans 5.1, which says, And therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, those in Christ by faith are no longer at war with God. Before, we were God's enemies. We were in rebellion against him and his ways, his will. But by his work, Jesus forgives us. and He reconciles us to God. He makes us friends, sons and daughters even. And so the peace of Christ starts with this cessation of hostility toward God. It begins with the knowledge that our souls have been secured by his work. We've been forgiven justified, redeemed, adopted, granted eternal life. And so as a result of, of what Jesus did for us, 
If you know him, it should be the case that uh, this, this peace, this inexplainable peace wells up within you such that the Christian should be able to say, despite circumstances, it is well with my soul. It may not be well with my body or my finances or all my relationships, but it's well with my soul. I have the peace of Christ. And this peace with Christ or the peace of Christ that God brings, as it overflows inside of us, it should spill over into our relationships. And that's largely what Paul has in mind here. What he's saying here in verse 15 is that the peace that characterizes our new self should be the ruling principle in our hearts. How we relate to others now should be dictated by this peace. And that's why he says here in verse 15, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This word rule refers to an arbiter. It was used of an an umpire in the athletic games or, or a judge who settles a matter. I think they have like a line judge in tennis. He's a guy who determines or calls the shot, whether it's in or out. And likewise here, that the peace of Christ should be a judge or arbiter in our lives, regulating how we deal with one another. We're to be ruled by his peace. And so in practice, you're going to have conflict with others in the church. But the question is, what does the peace brought by Christ have to say about that? I mean, when you're dealing with two Christians, you have two people for whom Jesus died, two people who've been justified, two people who've been adopted, two people who've been made alive, two people who've been made citizens of heaven, two people who've been filled by the Spirit. How should all of that be brought to bear with this conflict? I mean, your conflict may be real, but it's nothing that cannot be overcome by either forbearance or forgiveness. I mean, especially when you realize the other person, that they're not your enemy. They're your, your friend, your brother or sister in Christ. And so you're called to peace in the body. We, we have to let that peace rule if we were to be brought together. I trust you're all familiar with the concept of an autoimmune disease. These are some of the most mystifying and heartbreaking diseases. It's where your own immune system Tax your own body, mistakenly thinking good cells are foreign cells. Your otherwise healthy body turns on itself. Many examples of this, like multiple sclerosis, is where the body attacks its own protective coating around your nerve cells. That interrupts the brain's ability to control the body. And so after a while, someone with this disease might, for example, lose the ability to walk. It's a special type of tragedy when an otherwise healthy body just attacks itself for no good reason. And so it goes with the church. Church splits, infighting, and conflict are so heartbreaking in the church, especially when you have just two believers going at it or dividing. I mean, it's one thing, I guess, if you had some wolves in the flock and it was just some false teachers who were stirring up strife. But often it's just friendly fire. Sometimes genuine believers can get caught up in putting their own interests ahead of the Lord's. But for the sake of our unity, stability, and growth, we must not lose sight of the gospel. And that brings us 
peace with God, and, and that should lead to peace with one another. And the blood of the Savior is thicker than all of our, our differences. So let this, this peace of Christ, the peace that, that the Lord has brought to you, let that determine and, and define, rule over your relationships with others, such that you forbear differences and you forgive offenses. And the result, it's going to be this, this supernatural peace in the body. And in a local church, I'm telling you, there's, there's no substitute for that. I would take a, a simple church with no bells and whistles, no special ministries and programs, no state-of-the-art equipment and facilities, but an atmosphere of peace over the alternative any day. And the peace of Christ really is what it takes to have a, a stable, healthy growing church. Secondly, it takes the word of Christ. What else does it take to have a a stable, healthy, growing church? It also takes the word of Christ, right from verse 16 as we carry on. He says in verse 16, first, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. He moves from the peace of Christ to the word of Christ. And as one commentator aptly put, quote, the peace of Christ rules where the word of Christ dwells, end quote. The word of Christ here refers to the message of Christ in its narrow form. It's talking about, well, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, his gospel. But in broad form, it refers to all scripture, all of which unravels God's plan to save. We need the message of the cross and the mind of Christ in all of scripture to dwell within us. Speaking of this word dwell, it means to inhabit. It's a word used of, you know, where you live, where you dwell, your dwelling place. And so the word of Christ should take up residence within us. The word should be there so often, it's like it lives there. Maybe you once had a friend who was at your house so much, they might as well live there, you know, pull up a bed. The word should be a familiar resident in our hearts. And notice, he says the word of Christ is not just to dwell within you. It is to richly dwell within you. And this word means plentifully or abundantly. You just have to ask yourself, you know, how much of the word of Christ are you taking in to your life? Safe to assume you've all made a a cup of tea before. I just want you to picture this. You get that that piping hot cup of water ready. You get a nice, you know, tea satchel out of the box. It's ready to steep. And you proceed to take the tea bag and you're going to put it in the hot water for one second. Just in and out. It's a real quick dip. Just in and out. And that's it. Then you throw the tea bag away. Who does that? No one does that. You can't even call that tea. It's just like slightly flavored water at that point. It's so weak. But that's like the Christian who just dabbles in God's word. They're going to be weak. It can never be said that the word of Christ richly dwells in them. It might like briskly dwell in them or momentarily dwell in them, but, but it doesn't richly dwell in them. And don't get me wrong, it's, it's nice to read one verse of the Bible in the morning when you wake up. That's good. But if that's all you do, if that's all of the word that dwells in you, it's going to produce a weak Christian, like a weak cup of tea. 
You should instead be like that tea bag. You've forgotten the water for like 20 minutes. You come back, it looks like a cup of coffee. But for the Christian, that's a good thing. And Paul is telling us to be saturated with the word of Christ. This is a present active imperative. It's an ongoing command. It's a lifestyle, a daily repeated thing, just how we live. And this command is also in the plural. And this should characterize the whole body of Christ. And as other passages affirm that the word of Christ should have a central place in our assembly, in our corporate gatherings. You know, a steady diet of the rich word of Christ is fuel for true worship and our growth. Now, Paul takes us further. The word of Christ must saturate our lives and our churches. It must sit with us, but it must not sit still. In turn, we are to, to pass it around, to, to give it to others, to share it with others. And so in verse uh, 16, he follows this up with two participles. They just explain what it looks like for the word to dwell in us. He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then he adds, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And with all wisdom, we are to, to use the word that's dwelling within us to teach and admonish one another. Teaching refers more to the presentation of the truth, kind of aimed at the mind. Admonition, how to live in light of the truth, it's aimed at the will. Wisdom comes in to balance them both out, guiding us on you know, the right time, the right place, the right manner to teach and admonish. But together, though, this is an important point. That we grow when the word of Christ richly dwells within us. The word is what the Lord uses to, to guide us and direct us by the Holy Spirit. To control us. It's fuel for walking by the Spirit. And as it dwells in you though, you should want to see it dwell in others. And as your tank overflows, you should just share the word of Christ with others via teaching or admonishing. And make no mistake, all Christians are called to actively participate in this teaching and admonishing. Again, look back at chapter 1, verse 28. You recall Paul's own ministry mission. He said back in 128, we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That was what the Apostle Paul's gospel ministry was all about. But here in chapter 3, he's literally using all the same terms, teaching, admonishing, wisdom. Only now he's making clear that this is not just the job of apostles or pastors. This is the job of, of all Christians. We're called to teach and admonish one another. This is not always formal, you don't have to deliver a 60-minute sermon to teach one another. You don't have to sit someone down for a 90-minute counseling session to admonish one another. You just have to be filled with the word of Christ and let it spill over into your relationships. You see, God designed the church to grow through the word filling our minds. But he wants that word to come not just from the preacher once a week, but from all of us all the time as we gather. And so just think to yourself, 
Does scripture play any role in your conversations with one another throughout the week? You gather to hang out or go to a movie or share a meal. Does scripture ever come up? This is not to say you can only ever talk about the Bible. But do you want a healthy, stable, growing church assembly of believers? It takes more than just one sermon a week. We need more than that for the word to truly richly daily dwell in us. So from feeding yourself to helping feed one another, we need the word of Christ more often. Now, this verse isn't quite over yet. It gets a little more interesting, though. There are many ways in which we can teach and admonish one another with the word of Christ. It can be formal, like I'm doing now in this sermon. It can be informal, like just sharing a verse with someone at lunch. But did you know this is also meant to happen during our singing? Let's read the rest of the verse, verse 16. We didn't read it in advance. He says that the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Then he says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In the way this is phrased, Paul is saying here that one big way we are to teach and admonish one another is by our singing. Now, not all translations have it like this. The ESV separates teaching and admonishing from the singing. But I think the NSB has it proper here that the deciding factor in my mind is, is the super strong parallel passage of Ephesians 5.19. And it makes unambiguous that, yes, we are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It just seems clear that Paul envisions some horizontal dimension to our singing. Now, of course, we know that the primary purpose of our singing is to praise God. And Paul says that at the end of verse 16, right? Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to whom? To God. God is the sole object of our worship. But it appears that the Lord intends for our corporate praise to have a horizontal dimension as well. A blessed byproduct, you might call it. And when we gather to sing to the Lord together, the songs we sing end up teaching and admonishing us. And so if you're singing, you are partaking in that work. And I think the edifying nature of praise music is largely lost today. Praise music on the radio, which in turn is in many churches, it's, it's often of just no real substance. They're not really saying anything or anything of, of value, at least. There's certainly no instruction. It'd be hard to say that most songs today reflect the rich word of Christ. A lot of them are just emotional pleas. I, I literally laughed out loud when I read this quote from one commentator. I'll just read it for you. He said, most churches today, quote, sing ditties whose theological content makes a nursery rhyme sound like Thomas Aquinas, end quote. <laughs> if you know Thomas Aquinas, it's, that's pretty funny. But shallow music tends to lead to shallow Christians. Because you have to realize the power of music to shape our thinking, to influence our thinking, which in turn influences our behavior. It is actually a very powerful force, 
how Lord can use music as a truth-delivering mechanism for better or for worse. In addition, you have to recognize the power of, of singing to aid our memory and to help us remember truth. If you ever find it hard to memorize something, just put it to song. The children's ministry people got that down. They know better. That's why you learned the alphabet when you were a kid with a song. Or maybe you've heard stories of Alzheimer's patients where they, they can't really remember anything anymore. But they can still sing all the old hymns from their youth. Just for some reason or some way, God made us, designed us where there's just a, a, a staying power to music and an instructive power to song. And you can see how especially important this was for the early church. Because remember, they did not have personal copies of the Bible yet. The Old Testament scripture scrolls were located in the synagogue. The New Testament scriptures were just being written and disseminated. And so their primary access to scripture was only when it was publicly read when they gathered. And so if they were going to hold on to scripture and they wanted to, if they were going to let it richly dwell within them, they had to memorize it. And oftentimes to help in memorizing it, they would sing it. Singing had a very important function of teaching truth and aiding memory, both of which I think we we take for granted today. There's a record of the church father Tertullian in AD 200. He was describing a church gathering. He said where, quote, each person is invited to sing to God in the presence of the others from what he knows of the Holy Scriptures or from what or from his own heart, end quote. That's what they did. How'd you like that if we did that today, too? I mean, church starts and you all get a chance to sing a solo in front of everyone else of just what you know from Scripture. The point is, though, I think Paul knows and believes singing can have a very meaningful, horizontal, you know, teaching dimension. Of course, primarily, it's praise to God. That never changes, but it can affect us as well. Songs can affect the mind and the will powerfully. So especially in a church gathering, we want to have songs with rich content and filled with biblical and theological truth. All too many songs today that have just kind of worthless, trite lyrics that they might as well be about a girl. You, you wouldn't know better. No truth is being proclaimed. But instead, it should be the case that, that just by singing, It could be said of us that that the word of Christ is richly dwelling within us. Just by the content of our songs, God's word could be dwelling in us. Now, specifically here, just to to finish off verse 16, Paul mentions three things in particular, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Much ink has been spilt over these terms. Some claim that Paul is laying down a a strict taxonomy of, of acceptable worship music in the church. But you just got to be honest with what scripture says and sometimes with what scripture does not say. And the plain fact is the Bible never defines any of these terms for us. They're in fact rarely mentioned and sharp definitions just don't exist from the biblical data. You know, Psalms, okay, that that most likely refers to the Old Testament Psalter. That's fine. But, But what about hymns? The Bible doesn't say, does not ever define this or tell us what their content consisted of. You can go outside of scripture, but that's not that much more helpful. 
I mean, did you know that the apostolic fathers, they never used this Greek term for hymns because it was associated with praise to pagan gods. Later, Augustine himself struggled to define a hymn. He said it must have at least three characteristics. It must be sung, it must be praise, and it must be to God. That's it. That's a pretty broad definition. And then you get to spiritual songs, and we just have very little to go by. It's a common word for songs, but to distinguish it from secular songs, he calls them spiritual songs or songs of the Spirit. But that's, that's kind of about it. I mean, what can we really say? Those who try and make sharp distinctions or firm assertions about the church's musical content from the New Testament, they're not going to find that much support from the actual biblical evidence. What I think, though, is clear here from our text and context is that whatever the church sings, it should be praised to God and it should be rich in its content. That the word of Christ should be central in our singing. That, that to me, seems a, a crystal clear takeaway. Whatever the exact form or expression, it should reflect the word of Christ. It should be true, again, that of our singing, just by our singing, the word of Christ is richly dwelling within us. And that by singing, it can be an expression of us teaching one another, admonishing one another. We're all partaking, adding our voice to the chorus of of God's word. And this, I think, is another part of what it takes to have a stable healthy, growing church. You look at the ministry of the word, both the word preached and the word sung, and they're both so vital. These are times where you must not turn off your minds or just want to have your your ears tickled, as is so common. You know, some in preaching or in singing, they're, they're just looking for maybe a good time or just an entertaining experience. They want to disengage the mind as if True spirituality can only be felt. But we've learned in Colossians just the opposite is true. That the Lord directs us to fill our minds with the rich truth of his word. That is how we will truly know him and experience him. It's always by setting your mind on things above. You know, no one ever got full by not eating. We instead, we need to feast on the word of Christ in all of its forms If we're to see Christ and to know Christ. And back from Colossians 2. Unlike the mystics of Colossae. We need to hold fast to the head Christ. In all we do. In all we preach. In all we sing. You know you you can have a church with semi or quasi Christian music. And a a feel good message. But if it's Christless. If it's devoid of, of Christ. And the word of Christ, it's not going to bring about a a stable, healthy, growing church, at least not on God's terms. So let us never sacrifice the word of Christ richly dwelling within us in all of its forms for anything. Lastly, now, just to finish, what does it take to have a church? It takes the name of Christ. Thirdly, it takes the name of Christ. Here's verse 17. He says that to finish this section, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
With this verse, Paul finishes off the whole section that began back in verse 1. And in developing this whole train of thought, verse 17, it's like the last stop in the station, you know, everybody off. Everything he hasn't covered so far when it comes to to living out your newness in Christ is kind of captured by this last verse. Whatever you do, in word or deed, that's about as comprehensive as you can get. This, This relates to every single thing you say and every single thing you do. And so do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What exactly does that mean? It's not about simply invoking the name of Jesus as if that gives you the ability to to do anything free of consequence. No, it's about acting in accordance with his character. In the ancient Near East, your name represents you. It's who you are, your, your nature, your character. And furthermore, as believers, we are baptized into the name of Jesus. We identify with his name. We come under his lordship and authority, and he in turn makes us to bear his name. We become Christians, followers of Christ, representatives of Christ to the world. And so we should act accordingly. You should do all things in his name because you bear his name, and that means representing his character. And so practically then, doing all things in the name of Jesus It's not just tacking on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayers. It's about living daily life with each each word and and each deed passing through this grid. You know, will this represent Christ? Would Jesus say this? Would Jesus do this? Would he approve if I said or did this? You know, as one who's died to the old self, come alive to the new self, Would this word or deed align with my newness? You know, this section started back in verse 1. There he reminded us we've been raised up with Christ. So that's where you're asking yourself, you know, would this word or deed align with my heavenly life that I have in Christ? And so what Paul is telling us then is that as the church, we need the name of Christ to guide us. The name of Christ must live in the the forefront of our minds. And as it does so, it's going to yield a holy church. And to God, holiness is a huge part of what it takes to have a a stable, healthy, growing church. We're just guided by by Christ's name. And that leads us to walk in holiness. You know, in Christ, we're not under law. We're under grace. Grace. That doesn't mean we live lawlessly as if there's no more standard of right and wrong. It means we're no longer under the old covenant law with its detailed code of conduct, or conduct rather. The Lord gave his law to Israel and he told them what to do in, in every little situation. But now that Christ has come along with his spirit, we don't need to rely on a detailed code of conduct, which can never be exhaustive anyway. I mean, if God were really going to codify everything we should do in, in every situation of life, the Bible would be like a million pages long. No, but rather now in Christ, we have his spirit and we're guided by biblical principles. That this is an age of liberty where we still seek righteousness. We're just guided differently. And so if you want rules, just try two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
That's it. There's your law of Christ. And let that govern all you say and do, and you'll be honoring God. You'll be walking in holiness. And that's akin to what he's saying here, doing all in his name. You know, Paul over in 1 Corinthians 10 took the same approach. He answered a few of their questions. They had all these detailed questions about eating meat, sacrifice to idols. And he answered a few of their questions, but eventually he just summed it up. And he said, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Now, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, just do it all to the glory of God. Just kind of wraps it up. And it's the same thing here. Whatever you say, whatever you do, just be guided by this. Now, can I glorify God in this? Is this truly God honoring? If some have suggested you ask yourself, you know, would I say this thing or, or do this thing if my pastor was around? But forget me, I'm, I'm just a man. I'm not your Lord. Would you say or do this if, if Christ was around? Because he is. And so walk wisely. We need to let the name of Christ guide us all to holy living. And just to finish here, Paul adds at the end of verse 17, if you look there, he says, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And this is a fitting note to end. You may have noticed, but I skipped over this in all these verses. But Paul mentions thankfulness in every single verse here. Verse 15, he says, and be thankful. Verse 16, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Verse 17, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Thankfulness has been a bit of a theme in Colossians. Back to the key verse of 2, 6, and 7. We're told to, to walk in Christ. And then he adds at the end, and be overflowing with gratitude. Experiencing the peace of Christ, knowing the word of Christ, representing the name of Christ, all of that should, should evoke a thankfulness from you. You know, all we are, all we have in Christ should just make you profoundly thankful. And I believe Paul emphasizes thankfulness here because this undercurrent goes a long way in keeping the church together. The thankful people tend to be content people who are stable and, and healthy people. You know, the discontent, they always focus on what is wrong, on what they don't have. It, what they do have is never enough, and most often it leads to trouble with other people. But those who are content are those who re- realize, you know, what they have in Christ is enough. I mean, forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, the grace they received in Christ is enough to satisfy them. It fills them with thankfulness, just a daily, perpetual thankfulness. And you know what? That, that covers up or makes up for everything else, everything they lack. And that thankfulness is just, it just outweighs everything else. That type of gratitude, though, will have its own byproduct of just forming a, a strong, unified church. I mean, don't forget, Paul began this letter back in chapter 1, verse 3, by giving thanks for them. And we should likewise be thanking God for one another. And this habit will totally change your attitude toward others. I mean, does someone in, and even this church, rub you the wrong way? Are you in conflict with someone? Well, just ask first, when was the last time you prayed for them? Pray as Paul does, pray for their maturity, pray that for yourself as well. But you add to that a prayer 
of thanksgiving to God for that person. You see how that reshapes your heart toward this person as you remember. You know, this is a brother or sister for whom Christ died. You can thank God for that. You should thank God for that. Thank God for that person. I mean, despite your differences, if you can just get it straight that you're on the same team, it's going to work wonders in preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so this is what it takes to have a church. You don't need much, really, at least by modern standards. You don't need a building or gimmicks. You don't need ad campaigns or sharp graphics. You don't need state-of-the-art tech or the latest music. You don't need kids' play areas or coffee bars. These things aren't all bad. It's just not what the church is about. And it's not really what it takes in the Lord's eyes to have a stable, healthy, growing church. What it takes is is Christ. For Christ to be at the center. And it takes God's people coming together with faith in him. Such that they're known by the peace of Christ and the word of Christ and the name of Christ. And as they all put on Christ with a constant thankfulness, they're going to be stable, they will be healthy, and they will all grow together in Christ's image. And so I pray we can all follow this blueprint for what it takes to have a church. Let's do that. Let's pray. Our good God in heaven, we do pray that, that you help us follow, follow your word and, and what it takes to have a church, what it even means to be a church. In your grace, you've saved us by sending Christ to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, that we might be forgiven, renewed, purchased, and set apart unto you. And you call us for a reason. You gather us together for a reason. It's to make much of you, to worship you. It's to witness to the world the good news of Christ. And it's also to walk in holiness, to walk and be built up further into his image. We have much to do. We have a mission This is not just a a social club, a time to be entertained, a place to make friends. You've given the church in this era a mission. We have business to be about. That only comes about when we're unified, when we're together as one. Before that, Lord, how much we need the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. We need the word of Christ richly dwelling within us. We all need the name of Christ guiding us on on how we are to live as, as those who've been Uh, called by him and bought with a price. So I pray these truths just guide us, that they they stay in the front of our minds. All that we've learned about how we are to live as new creatures in Christ, we need this instruction to fill us and guide us, Lord. And may we take it seriously and, and grow, grow in our mission, grow in our love, grow in our unity, that we might be one of those stable, healthy, and growing churches. By your grace, may that be so. Be with us and help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.